On the 7th of December 1900, Superintendent Robert Muirhead of the Northern Lighthouse Board said farewell to his three lighthouse keepers, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall and Donald MacArthur. They waved him goodbye as he stepped off the east landing at Aylin Moor onto his waiting boat to take him back to the mainland. The three lighthouse men were starting their next shift for three weeks on the island, taking care of the lighthouse and ensuring safe passage for the ships that passed by the islands on the west coast of Scotland, navigating the often stormy and tempestuous Atlantic Ocean. What Robert Muirhead didn't know at that time, as he watched the three men head off into the distance, was that he would likely be the last person to see them alive. The story surrounding the Flannan Isles Lighthouse has been a story of wonder and mystery for over a hundred years. What happened there and why? Let's find out more. I'm Leanne Walker and this is Wonder, the show where each week I bring you tales of wonder and curiosity from across the globe about the people, places and events that shape our daily lives. Lying to the west of Scotland are the beautiful and mysterious Outer Hebrides, a group of islands each with their own identity. The Flannan Islands, a crop of islands northwest of Gallenhead in Uig, stand just over 20 miles from the Isle of Lewis. The islands, also known as the Seven Hunters, are an outcrop of volcanic rock that have never been permanently inhabited. The largest of the Flannan Islands is Aylan Moor, and is at the highest point in the group of islands. Its name means Big Island. The Flannan Isles are a bird sanctuary, and as early as the 17th century, it's known that the people of Uig Parish would go to the Flannan Isles to graze their sheep and kill seafowls for their feathers. It has the ruins of a chapel dedicated to St Flannan, a 7th century Irish priest who preached on the Hebrides and after whom the islands are named. For many centuries, the islands have been viewed by the local communities as a place of mystery and superstition. In the late 18th century, the Northern Lighthouse Board was created, following several deaths at sea around the west coast of Scotland, where at times the seas can be treacherous and difficult to navigate. In 1894, work on the lighthouse on Aylan Moor started. The 75-foot-tall lighthouse was designed by David Allen Stevenson, part of the famous Stevenson family, of which the writer Robert Louis Stevenson may be best known. Construction took four years and cost £6,914, which in today's terms is equivalent to about £815,000, or just over a million dollars. That included the building, the landing places, the stairs and the railway tracks. All the materials used had to be hauled up the 147-foot cliffs directly from supply boats, no trivial task in the ever-churning Atlantic. Such was the steep incline of the steps, a small service railway was installed, where a cable-supported railcar could be used to transport heavy goods to and from the landing platform. The 140,000 candle-powered lamp that sat proudly atop a majestic white tower 275 feet above sea level, was lit for the first time on the 7th of December 1899. 
The guiding light shone brightly across the dark Atlantic waters, providing security and safety to many sailors and to ship's captains. The lighthouse was manned by four lighthouse keepers in rotation, with three men staying on the rock at any one time, and the fourth getting shore leave every three weeks. Such were the difficult conditions and isolation that the men needed to have time off the island regularly. For the first year of duty, the lighthouse men carried out their lonely and hard work without incident. In December 1900, the regular keepers were James Ducat, a very qualified lighthouse man with over 20 years of experience, first assistant keeper William Ross, and second assistant keeper Thomas Marshall. The replacement keeper was Joseph Moore. In early December, William Ross was forced off the island due to ill health. With the regular replacement keeper Joseph Moore not due for a further two weeks, Ross was replaced by 40-year-old occasional keeper Donald MacArthur. At that time, there was no wireless communication between Flannan Isle and Lewis on the mainland. As was standard practice, the island was kept under observation from land where a telescope would be trained on Flannan Isle at regular intervals. In case of emergency, the lighthouse keepers could hoist a flag and assistance would be sent out to them. The lighthouse was often obscured by poor weather, so there was no guarantee that the signal would be seen. Night observations were also a matter of routine. The lamp was visible on the 7th of December, but it was obscured by bad weather on the following four evenings. It was seen again on the 12th of December, but after that it wasn't visible for over a fortnight. On the 15th of December, an American vessel, the SS Arctor, was making its way from Philadelphia to the port of Leith in Edinburgh. The weather had taken a turn for the worse. There were heavy rains and gusting winds for most of the voyage. By late afternoon, however, on the 15th, the storm had abated somewhat, leaving fine, clear skies above. As the SS Arctur approached Aylan Moor, a little before midnight on the 15th, it noticed that the lighthouse beacon wasn't ablaze. This was very concerning to the ship's captain. The light should always be working. Intending to relay a message about the lighthouse when it reached land, the SS Arctur continued its journey down the coast of Scotland. Sadly, it ran aground on the Carfee Rock near Anstruther on the 17th of December. Damaged but still able to steer it, Captain Holman took the ship to the port of Leith, where it had to undergo significant works. No message was passed on regarding the Flannan Isles lighthouse. The relief vessel Hesperus, carrying fresh supplies and the relief lighthouse man Joseph Moore, was due to leave on the 20th of December, but because of the terrible weather conditions, he was held back until Boxing Day on the 26th. As the Hesper set sail and approached the islands, it noticed that the light wasn't burning. When it was time for the next rotation, the keepers would raise a flag for the incoming vessel, but as Captain Harvey of the Hesperus scoured the island, he couldn't see the flag anywhere. The captain set off a distress flare and sounded the horn, but there was no response. They were becoming more concerned when they noticed there was no one to meet them at the mooring on the east landing, something that the men would always do. Also, 
there would have been empty provision boxes there ready to be restocked, but these were nowhere to be seen either. The island was silent, the weather and squalling seagulls overhead adding to the eeriness of the situation. The Hesperus pulled up alongside the East Landing, and the captain asked Joseph Moore to head on up to the lighthouse to investigate further. Moore set off up the steep cliffs towards the lighthouse. He noticed that the entrance gate was locked and that the door to the lighthouse closed. As he first stepped inside the lighthouse, all was quiet, but nothing immediately looked out of place. He called the lighthouse men's names, but there was no answer. After entering the lighthouse, he found the kitchen door was wide open. There were cold ashes in the grate, telling him that it hadn't been lit for some days. The rest of the room was spotlessly clean. Dishes were done, the lamps were cleaned, but beds were unmade as if the men had just woken, but there was no sign of any of the lighthouse men. He also noticed the clocks had stopped and that there was an overturned chair in the kitchen, giving him more concern. Outside the kitchen, hanging on the ped beside the door, was one set of oilskins and Wellington boots. Ducat and Marshall's gear was missing, but it was MacArthur's coat that was still on the peg. Why would one of the men have left without putting on his outer clothing, considering the really cold and harsh winter conditions here? This seemed almost unbelievable. Joseph Moore returned to the Hesperus and told the captain what he'd found. He then took some more men back with him so that they could do a wider search and see if there were any clues as to what could have happened. Later, Captain Harvey decided that Joseph Moore should stay with the boymaster Alan MacDonald and two seamen, Messrs Campbell and Lamont, to get the lighthouse up and running again and to investigate further. Captain Harvey then set off immediately for Brestgleet and Lewis. Once on the mainland, he sent a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board saying, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island. On arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was to be seen. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land Moore, who went up to the station but found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we couldn't wait to make something as to their fate. I have left Moore, MacDonald, Boymaster and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I've repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you're not at home. I'll remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. As the men searched the island, they noticed that although the east landing seemed intact, albeit not ready for their arrival, the west landing showed signs of damage from recent storms. The railway beside the path that was used to transport goods up the steep cliffs had been wrenched out of its housing. There were iron railings bent over, and a box about a hundred feet above sea level had been smashed open. 
The lighthouse men kept daily logs and the last entry was for 9am on the 15th of December. It referred to the damage on the West Landing, so this had obviously occurred before the men's disappearance. A few days later, the Northern Lighthouse Board sent Superintendent Robert Muirhead to investigate further. Muirhead confirmed Moore's initial findings and pointed to a particularly heavy storm front that was believed to have hit the island during the time of the men's disappearance as the most likely culprit. A buoy that had been fastened to the railings 110 feet up had vanished, as well as a large block of stone weighing upwards of a tonne had clearly been dislodged by something before falling onto the path below. Over the years, there's been many theories put forward about the missing lighthouse men and details have been added, often for a dramatic effect. Tales such as Joseph Moore finding uneaten meals on the table. This was not true. And questions over the mental health of some of the men. Again, these are untrue. There's no evidence at all in the logbooks to suggest there was anything wrong with the men prior to their disappearance. The logbook entries only refer to the damage on the West Landing. Despite intensive searches and detailed investigations, the bodies of the three men were never found and no formal explanation has ever been fully confirmed for their disappearance. Mysteries such as these will always bring fantastic theories to the surface, such as murder, one of the lighthouse men becoming enraged and pushed the other two over and then threw himself in after them, or, or even an abduction, it was the evil spirits on the island that took them. The answer was probably much simpler than that, however. In his report in 1901 to the Northern Lighthouse Board, Superintendent Muirhead believed that it was a freak wave that took them all out to sea. His thoughts were that two of the men must have gone out to secure some of the rigging in the harsh conditions, the third man staying behind as required. The lighthouse was never to be left unattended at any time. Did that third man see the large swell coming towards the other men from his higher vantage point and then run out to warn them and in doing so got caught up himself? This would explain the rushed exit, the overturned chair and the lack of oil skins. He was in such a rush that he forgot to put them on. If this were the case though, it does beg the question, why was the lighthouse door closed? Perhaps the wind could have done that, that's fair. But the gate being locked? Also, these men were experienced lighthouse men, working in very harsh conditions for many years. How were they surprised by a large wave? And why were the bodies never recovered anywhere? Would they not have been washed ashore at some point? These are questions that will never be answered but do remain and continue to make this an enduring tale of mystery and wonder to this day. After the incident, the lighthouse remained manned until 1971, without further incident, when it was automated, and now the only visit to the island is for essential maintenance. The Mystery of the Flannan Isles has inspired many artistic productions, including a Doctor Who episode, Horror of Fang Rock, a Genesis song, and The Lighthouse, an opera by the late Sir Peter Maxwell Davies. In 1912, Wilfred Gibson published his famous poem, Flannan Isle. The piece wasn't historically accurate, but it did create a sense of danger and uncertainty which captivated audiences then and now. I'll have a copy of that in the show notes.
Whatever happened on that fateful day, three brave men, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall and Donald MacArthur, the Flannan Isles Lighthouse Keepers, or Wikis as they were affectionately known, lost their lives doing a difficult and often lonely job that kept many thousands of ships and their sailors safe across the seas. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. For more information, please visit injustoneday.com forward slash wonder, where you'll find the show notes, links and sources. I've also put together a PDF of information about today's topic. To get that, head on over to www.injustoneday.com forward slash the keepers. Keep in touch via Facebook, In Just One Day, Twitter, One Day Two, or email hello at injustoneday.com. But until next time, have a great day.